Hello, welcome everybody. This is Omni the Podcast. I'm Gifford. I'm Luz. And we put together some amazing content Coming for your listening you pleasure. You're going to like everything today. We got specially stacked it just for you. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I'm ready to just jump into this, but uh, before we... Have you noticed how our audience just gets bigger and bigger every episode? And that guy back there with a the hat on, like, thanks for showing up with that. Sir, put your shirt back on. All right, and, and sit, sit down, because oh, I uh, got some great stuff, but uh, it is... Uh, it, this episode is coming out in fall in Oregon, and in fall it is beautiful with the trees turning their colors and getting messy on the ground, but they're beautiful when they're up in the trees. And it got me thinking uh, about change, you know, you see the trees changing. Um, and uh, Luce, what kind of things do you think mark change for you when you think about like how do you know that something has changed like some people they know it's like getting to uh to winter when they pull their sweaters out mm. and and put their short sleeves away or their shorts Hoodies away and whatnot yeah yeah you got anything like that that yeah i don't know just different things like damp there's a lot of rain i like the grayness i love the fall as it sort of blends into winter um it's kind of somber there's no know. like one thing like it just rains one day and you're like oh it's it's winter no it's fall mm. nothing like that no mm-hmm some grayness we're going to be talking about in this episode, actually. I know we didn't plan for this, uh, but like, uh, this is a great intro to some of the uh, things we're going to be talking about in the episode. I was just thinking, and, and what kind of came to brought this to my mind is that uh, I recently turned the uh, switch, the heating, the uh, on in my house, turned the AC off, and it's kind of always a this milestone. Like, how long will I ride it out? Because it gets cool here, but it doesn't get cold. And then at a certain point, like, I got to turn it on. It is officially fall winter dark cold season mm-hmm. naturally a big indicator of fall and winter is the uh, start of the hockey season so i'm all over hockey watching my penguins they're doing really well right now on their west coast tour yeah right on of course uh we're gonna get into uh the episode but i do have a couple nuts and bolts gotta take care of some stuff first and one thing just note anybody we're, yeah, that's listening on the apple podcast it something is happening with the the art loose it's not updating or something it like isn't that? no it's complicated we're busy people we're not professional podcasters nor do we want to be but um <laughs> unless you want to pay us mm-hmm. our original infantile art that we first put up is still is what's posting for uh our stuff but we are moving forward and uh, we're going global uh on instagram now you can find us there and in the gmail we have that as well and they're both at omni the podcast uh so easy to easy to find like that and looking forward to I saw thank you for the people that have already subscribed to the Instagram. Not sure how you found it, but uh, looking for the first people to uh, send us an email. Mm-hmm. Could be you. OK, our f- very first block today is going to be the education block. And I've got some uh, people giving us feedback already saying this is one of their favorite blocks. You ready to do some education talk? I think so. Okay, I'm going to steer this uh, conversation in a slightly different way, Luz, today, because I was reflecting again on change, as we talked about earlier, but, uh, you know, beginning of the school year, and I, being a um, history major, always used to start my first day with my freshmen with the uh, a picture from 
archaeological dig in ancient Sumer. And in that picture, and it was kind of fun because, you know, I, over the years, it used to be like on the overhead projector, project the picture. And then, of course, I had digital ones so I put up there. School, yeah. I, so old school. So old school. like draw it on the chalkboard. Yeah. But um, it was a picture of a, a schoolroom, an ancient schoolroom from, um, from the town of Sumer in the Assyrian Empire. This school year, or this schoolroom was 2000 BCE. So almost 4,000 years ago, schoolrooms. That's a long time ago. We'll talk about all the old stuff in this episode today. Yeah, and in the picture that you can see, I you know, for the, I asked the kids. I said, "What? I tell them it's an ancient schoolroom." It's like, what do they see? Is the similarities and differences from their schoolroom and that schoolroom? And the kids are you know pretty astute. They're like, "Oh, you can see where they sat in rows. You can see little cubbies where they put their stuff, and you know, connected to somebody four thousand years ago as another school kid." Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could see where they had, like, the Chromebooks, where they put those and everything. The chargers. Yeah. You got to sit next to those. Because yeah. on the fourth day, whenever God created synergy in parent view, um, mm. I do want... Did they have lap? Did they have iPads back then? I don't know when the iPad was developed. No, they're actually working on cuneiform, Luce. Uh, as a history major, I'm a little <laughs> surprised. But that's okay. We'll work on that later on. Okay. And so, again, I would talk to the students about, uh, about that. Go on. And as I'm thinking about the connection, like, these kids understand... The kids 4,000 years ago, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, have we been, like, torturing kids for 4,000 years, like, dragging them into the classroom, like, sit down, do that stuff. You know, it's kind of makes me a little sad. And I get the impression that they were sad because we've seen in the archaeological evidence a story about a schoolboy. I think they just generically call the schoolboy story. And it's known in this region uh, because it's it was we we found evidence of this story in other Assyrian cities at the time like Ur, Ur, and the their variations they're slightly different they're hundreds of years apart but so it was a story a legend you might say that was going on and it's a story of a schoolboy and schoolboy starts off the story at, at least the the version that I've seen. Uh, with him being late to school, he's you know he's, he has his mom has to wake him up. Punishable, yeah. And uh, he his mom's making breakfast. His dad's yelling at him to go to school, uh, and of course he shows up at school. And guess what they do to him for showing up late? Detention. Oh, they cane him. Oh, physical. Ooh. Like yeah. I wonder if better. <laughs> I, like, I wonder if that would get kids to school a little faster. Yo. Now. All right. <clears throat> so he gets caned for being late. Then uh, he gets uh, messes up his cuneiform. He gets caned. Uh, he disrespects the teacher. He gets caned. Uh, you get some bad marks on, you know, bad marks on his bad marks. And he gets caned for that. Uh, and, of course, this doesn't go well when, you know, dad finds out about it. No. At least they might return the phone calls because when I call home on my students, I usually. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> crickets out there uh so teacher tells the dad that kid's not gonna pass and they decide to the family decides to invite the teacher over for dinner Hmm. come on over have some nice food here's some fine wine and then you know give some uh, a couple parting gifts on on the way out and at the end of the tale the teacher is you know pronounces that this uh student is the best uh, best student in in the in the school. We make the magistrate proud because of the favors that the parents actually gave to the teacher. Yeah. Okay. Well, 
you know, we're in the middle of a teacher strike here uh, locally, and uh, maybe there's something to this tale that could play. Some teacher appreciation, some teacher validation, recognition of their efforts. Something, keeping <laughs> their kids entertained for a while. Uh, anyway, so it brought that up. But again, I was just like, uh, but the idea that we've been making kids go to work. And like, did this kid really want to, you know, go press cuneiform into clay to make some rich person richer? Mm-hmm. So many of our kids now, like, they ask the question, like, how is this going to help me later in life? Like, drawing the connection between, like, why does they need to be in school and learn the lessons that they do and how that might translate to like the things that they're going to do maybe professionally or for a job or whatever. And I can just imagine this er boy, um, you know, not understanding, connecting, like, why do I need to learn trigonometry and not understanding the valid direct connection to going and using rocks to club uh, small woodland creatures to feed his family? Well, I mean, there's something to be said for education, but is there a a nicer way than making kids dragging them into the classroom like for four thousand years we've been doing this is our success rate great at this Mm, maybe for some certainly yeah well if you have an opinion on that um go ahead and you could be the first one to send us an email all right moving on to our next block music corner uh loose what do you got for us this episode for this episode we're going to be talking about drop 19s uh drop 19s um or essentially and widely interpreted as a shoegaze project personally While I generally do like shoegaze, I'm super selective about it and wouldn't really like to ascribe this denomination to drop 19s. Luke's got to interrupt here. Uh, Shoegaze? Oh, my God. Can uh, can you give me a little bit of background? What what are we talking about with shoegaze? If you could hold on for just a second here. Um, So it's funny. uh, In previous times, uh, our dear friend Ruthie has globally categorized the totality of my tastes and preferences as shoegaze. I say that in air quotes. I only really like a few shoegaze bands uh, in actuality and wholeheartedly disagree with the sweeping insinuation, loose listeners to shoegaze. Again, funny. We nevertheless... Okay, but what is shoegaze? Help me. We probably need to discuss shoegaze birth and era. Um, I, before we kind of get into that, though, I was going to ask, do you think that I generally listen to shoegaze? Has, I was don't ever, know uh, what that kind of music okay, okay, is. Okay, okay, so okay. like. So, shoe, okay, so I, shoegaze derived from the exhausted depletion of new wave and general uninspiring void new wave kind of created after existing for, in my opinion, far too long. Okay. It existed uh, from the very later 80s to basically into the early to mid-90s. Psychedelia had already occurred in the 60s, proto-punk in the 70s, post-punk and new wave in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shoegaze is a kind kind of warm marriage of all of those things. Very melodic and pretty tones, but through fuzzy, washed-out, distorted guitar with heavy reverb. Uh, mm-hmm. The cascading mm-hmm. tones in shoegaze probably more closely resemble dream pop than anything else. The literal interpretation of shoegaze reflects the demeanor and stance of the band members, the performers, not the audience, which I think gets really confused. The members of these bands would project a sense of apathetic indifference towards the experience in the audience by remaining still, looking to the near vicinity and the ground, their shoes. Oh, okay, I got it, I got it. You know, just from your description there, I think I'm probably going to know some of these bands that you're going to mention here, because... Yeah, maybe. I followed that kind of genre of music. Yeah. So, um, so what do we got? What do we got? Well, so the music is like simultaneously 
uh, melancholic and also blissful at the same time, both of those things occurring at the same time. Are, so you're not familiar with any like shoegaze bands or albums or anything? Well, I'm just saying that that term, I have never heard shoegaze until, what is this, three minutes ago? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just not a, a, you know, came across my, my vocab. Yeah, it's kind of experiencing right now. Like, it's like re-renaissance Show in a lot gaze. of ways. Okay. Shoegaze. Shoegaze. Yeah. Um, so My Bloody Valentine, originally formed in Dublin, with their 1988 release, Isn't Anything, is widely regarded as the first shoegaze act. Uh, they had some albums before that, some EPs before that, but that was like a definitive album that kind of marked the beginning of shoegaze. With My Bloody Valentine, uh, it, they are definitively synonymous with shoegaze. My, Ve- My Bloody Valentine is usually the first thing that I think of when I think of the genre. Uh, hard to imagine how Blur, Radiohead, and 90s acts that dominated the British airwaves would have existed without the movement of shoegaze, a movement that was effectively exclusively British. It was huge over there. It didn't really trickle into American mainstream. Uh, By the time shoegaze eventually did manage to find some residence in the United States, grunge had quickly emerged and just exploded, dominated the American theme. For all of these reasons, I'm most excited to discuss Drop 19s, which was one of the only, and by far, in my opinion, the most critically important American response to British shoegaze. And really, when I'm talking about Drop 19s, I'm talking about the uh, one album in particular, Delaware. It's the band's first record. They recorded it in 1992 while attending college in Boston. Seemingly, like many shoegaze bands, they satisfy the one female band member requirement, <laughs> uh, creating for some really, really pretty vocals and tones. Uh, the band veered away from shoegaze with their follow-up record the next year, uh, National Coma, which was not well received and they just kind of broke up or something after. Um, accordingly, Delaware, years and years after the fact, is cemented as the band's most important critical album. This album has been so important to me. Um, it's on my regular rotation, still has been for many, many years. I still can't get enough of it. I can listen to it all the time. If I were to be on a desert island, um, you know, and I would have to have one record, this would be it. Is this why Ruthie um, categorized your taste in music I, I don't even this? I don't even know that it I've sounds ever like listened. you're going to like a desert island with these this music so. yeah maybe, I, I don't even know that right. I've ever listened to it with her it's just gonna been like a funny thing that comes up and I think even just like phonetically the title of the genre shoegaze is just it's pleasing it, it really draws a lot of like images in your mind I wish I had known about it before five minutes ago oh, there we go um it feels very nine the album Delaware feels very 90s teen angsty but in a way much different than the irresponsible troubled grunge shit, basically. And, I mean, do you feel like that's an okay way to categorize, like, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Stone Tumble Pilots era? Do you st- Did you see that as being, like, irresponsible at all? I'm not sure in what ways it'd be irresponsible, because I think that uh, teen angst is an expression of a more uh, a feeling uh, so to speak. So if you have a feeling and you're expressing it, I'm not sure what are irresponsible. I guess maybe some of like, I mean, that was the emergence of almost pandemic level sort of things with non-suicidal self-injury, suicide, school shootings, and so many of like the grunge sort of songs really tap into that like darkness in a way that maybe punk was a little bit more like fun and flirty and less sort of dangerous and I think you know um, just this like timeless like teen angst thing and the fueling 
that grunge did towards maybe some of the more like dangerous or toxic things. I don't know. We all a- had that. But I think, okay, so I think that uh, angst, teen angst, is really a reflection of a particular time. So, like, you know, there's obviously been teen angst all the way back to ancient Sumer days. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> Yo. and so it's how they, you know, how they presented. So, like, teenagers in the 90s were beginning to feel more isolated it makes sense that the teen angst then reflected more of that whereas mm. i think maybe punk like you were talking about more uh, was like more social pressure that was keeping people down so it was mm. more like you know more collective kind of action okay more unifying more okay. uniting yeah carry on i think that like whether it, a lot of counterculture a lot of counterculture music like whether it's grunge or punk or whatever shoegaze also satisfies like that cathartic sort of like outlet I think to have the angst released uh, whether you're listening or participating in the bands Winona is the main track uh, the main hit track from Delaware if they had a hit whatever and it's reference and glory to Winona Ryder which also feels qualitatively uh, 90s Uh, there's a cover of Madonna's early hit single Angel which is really pretty it's a unique take on the original song Uh, the track Kick the Tragedy is such a delightful track. Probably my favorite if you really had to pin me down to choose one. It basically begins with what will eventually ensue to be a long-winded, fluttery, semi-structured blur of dreamy fuzz guitar and overdrive. Uh, a lot of solid state amps going on for sure. Uh, the opening, and then opening to a poem read by Paula Kelly, the band's sole female member, about the uncertainty and despondence of being a 19-year-old girl in America in the 90s. I mean, think like, Daria, my so-called life, Ghost World, um, yeah, any of these like '90s moody, angsty demeanor uh, amid de facto American opulence and privilege at the time resonate with you? Like, did you ever watch any of those shows or like those movies or anything? I really wasn't big into watching a lot of those teenagers. I mean, when I think of you know, in my generation, it would have been like The Breakfast Club or um, something like Pretty in Pink, something like along those lines. With teen angst, is that sort of the same idea? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd more reflective in the the eighties take on it, but yeah, certainly. And in those kind of films, I always felt like they were uh, pushing a uh, a canned, a fake narrative, a sort of like model of. I mean, if you think of a movie like The Breakfast Club, it seems like they're all just uh, you know these stereotypes of kids. So when you know, I, when they watch something like that, it's like kind of abstract because it's it's not it's trying to reflect me or it's trying to reflect kids of an age but it fails in the uh, you know it fails in in actuality i think that's probably true across uh times yeah absolutely um yeah the track my aquarium is really pretty super simple one note acoustic guitar progression with male and female harmonies also an ambiguous poem about teen angst um Otherwise, it's kind of hard to isolate one track to talk about with this album. Each song is qualitatively distinct while also contributing to a like clearly cohesive theme and concept of the record. The whole thing fucking works, like front to back. Like sex and romance is deeply implied but never really directly mentioned. Um, so it's, it's has a level of sophistication. Um, extremely coincidentally, unbeknownst to me, after I w- decided I wanted to write about Drop 19s, they reunited to release their no. first record no. in a, l- a little over 30 years uh, since the release of Delaware. Um, and, dude, it was just released on November 3rd. Oh, yeah. what are we doing here? Why are we down at the record store? <laughs> what about 8-track? Well, 
I was initially I was initially like jizzing pretty hard, uh, excited to learn this uh, before the immediate reality set in, such that I don't know. I'm very worried in anticipation. You haven't heard it yet. I have I have it downloaded and I haven't listened to it mm-hmm. yet, man. I'm worried that in anticipation, like the album is just gonna like not be good. I mean, so many of like the reunion. Uh, I mean, so many of like the reunion revival projects, like. As much as everyone wants the band to get back together, the resurrection is almost always pretty pitiful and it falls flat. Yeah, true, true. But uh, you know, this could be it. This could be it. This yeah. could be the one. The, mem- the members are older, perhaps like washed up some. Although I saw a recent promo picture of them, and they're all looking as sexy as they can be for their age. Um, it's and the lighting and the the filters. I it just makes me wonder: Are they going to tr- try to revive a sound that was so special? to a prior zeitgeist that just doesn't fit anymore. Like, if something about their youthfulness was, like, glaring... So their youthfulness is, like, glaringly, like, displayed and essential to the feel of Delaware. Um, I'm putting off lis- listening to the new release, but I'm sure I will eventually enough to set some emotional barriers to protect and amber my, um, you know, interpretations and love for Delaware. I think it's a, an interesting um, issue that I think with bands that do get to back together because they're, you know, do you write music it, that sounds like the, the time period? I mean, that's how people know you. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, your, your jam, so to speak. Or do you try to go another direction? But if you go too far, then your original fans don't connect to you or that the bridge is too far. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting artistic uh, decision. It'll be, it'll be, Maybe next episode we can uh, music corner. We can talk about your review. Well, and I maybe talk a little bit more about like expectations and what you think you want mm. isn't always what you're going to really enjoy. And so for them to like rehash maybe an album that's the same sound as Delaware, you know, I'm I'm, I'm worried. Um, and I really need to uh, protect the legacy of Delaware. Um, so Gifford. Given this description of Drop 19s and their album Delaware, do you think this is an album you'd give a listen? Uh, definitely. I mean, obviously, I appreciate your uh, choice in music, so I definitely oh, want to give it a... Yeah, well, I've heard some stuff from... Um, but I also have this feeling like, because I listen to the streaming music a lot, I don't always know. Like, I probably have heard them somewhere along the line. Kind It'll of be interesting. Me. Yeah, maybe. Um, and to finish up on this block, I gotta say that we've been looking into putting music into music corner i mean it's obvious has a place but we're worried about the logistics i don't know when either one of us want to get sued again this isn't our job so don't want to put it along the line we understand people want to hear music we want to hear music in this yeah for sure we're gonna look into maybe if we can do little like snippets or something like fair use fuck don't sue us don't sue us um but and i'm also thinking about maybe including parts of the music review where it's like pause now for the podcast and then go listen to the song to <laughs> nice. reference maybe some of the you know <laughs> turn, interactive. Turn, the, turn the tape over you know like whatever we're old it's time for three things philosophy and i got a good one for you loose i want to talk about uh lao tzu lao Z. there's a bunch of different ways to pronounce his name pronunciate his name and what that's what kind of makes him sort of an interesting figure is that we don't actually know he actually was a living thing. Like, he's so important. One of those, going back in history, did he actually live? Now, he supposedly was born in the 6th century, which is, if, you know, if you're up on your Chinese history, it's the uh, spring and autumn period. And he is, when I think about, well, and why I wanted to bring him up today, Luce, was because 
I think about the differences between Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. There's always a lot of like him and, you know, like we're, you know, the individualist, you know, version of humanity based in Western philosophy and the more collectivist side in Eastern philosophy. And I'm not, this is not where we're going to answer that debate, but Lao Tzu is a influential person on Eastern philosophy. And many people, if they don't believe in Taoism, practice principles of Taoism. Okay, so a lot of like Eastern religious thought, spiritual thought comes from Lao Tzu? Oh, definitely. And can, I, can I come Lao Tzu? Lao Tzu? I don't know Lao Tzu. Okay. Um, He's so influential, like as legend goes. Again, we don't know that if he actually was a person that he uh, supposedly met Confucius when Confucius was very young and he was very old. Like the overlap there is a legendary story of those two philosophers. So he's pretty significant in there and he's the founder of Tao. Though he may not be an actual person who existed, he supposedly met someone who also maybe not have existed. No, I'm pretty sure Confucius did. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. That's interesting. Like that's established the, fact. That's, yeah, that's, that's that's okay. Yeah. Because we have a lot of records and stuff of his existence. But, you know, Lao Tzu, legend, I like, he wandered around. I, I don't even want to get into his life. But um, he, of course, is credited with writing the, the Tao Te Ching, which is one of the foundational texts of Taoism. So that's the, like, where this religious thought comes from. And I think, though, Luce, this might be the, the perfect religion. I think it. it's not going to be, and we can get into Just, this later. Um, but I like this next it, little tenet here. That it might be. It this. might be. So, um Taoism does not believe in God and poor gods. That's great. I like that part. I That's mean, good. yeah. That's and good. Uh, no afterlife. Don't have to worry about what you do now. In fact, yeah, because for uh, Taoists, they believe that life is just eternal. Is it not as silly, though, as like afterlife? Like the idea that just like perpetually there's this soul that exists in a plane that is existence and it is, I don't know. No, I always thought of that as more like the uh, elements that made up my body, the iron from the you know early parts of the universe, are still going to be little bits of iron floating around the universe so after it, I'm it, gone. So, so like that, that biological, like physiological, like carbon-based underpinnings, is that a part of this at all, or is this is it more spiritual? I think it's. Um, I don't want to get in, you know, too finite of the rules of Taoism because I'm not a Taoist per rules, se. Okay. But again, this idea of I, I think of it as being the the kind of sort of connectedness that is you might see in Buddhism, where we're all co- we're all part of this endless cycle. Of, oh boy. Okay. okay. <laughs> all right. Anyway. So, but that's all right. You don't have to like agree with that. It could be part of your religion, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they also believe in free will. Like you have the decision. You're not predetermined to do things, or you're not made to get loose. You are the captain of your ship. Okay. I like that. Um, and what that means, of course, is that you can make choices uh, that act unnaturally, not what you should be doing, or maybe something not what you should be doing, but something that upsets the balance of the Tao. And you have the free will to elect to, with volition to do that. Correct. Okay. I like that. All right. And, of course, again, is what uh, Tzu, uh, Lao Tzu is saying is that the... Uh, what you don't want to do with acting unnaturally for his take is to upset the balance of the Tao. Like that's his big thing. And it's often translated as the way. Now, Luce, if I, if I was to ask you, what, what do you think of when you think of like the road or the path or the way? What do you what comes to mind? So I would think of a road as being a closed with a Z platform, a parameter laden, boundaried uh, path where like you don't deviate from it. It's just like you go along that thing and it's very constrained in that sense. 
All right. I think um, that the the idea of a road like being someplace going to someplace isn't exactly you know correct not like that's what you said but i think that there's a, this idea that this is something when he says that you need to follow the the, the dow or not disrupt the dow or to go with the dow you're not actually going from point a to point b is that you're going in the place that there isn't other things like how maybe a river might sort of you might go with the flow and trajectory of a river yes it's yes but the way then being defined as the 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 path so far that you're supposed to follow not to the destination but the way that you're supposed to travel is on the place that there isn't anything else and so if you think about a road you think that a road divides there's something on your right there's something on your left there's trees there's trees you're going through a forest you're going through a city the road itself is the place where there isn't anything that allows for the transit, the travel to happen. And so when you follow the Tao, you're not following a directional path to something. You were just going in the place that there is nothing else. Okay. It does seem neurological almost in a way. Well, like pathways or something like that. Places connecting other parts where there are intentional sort of directions or whatever. But I would like to talk about mud and Right now, I would like to talk about ATVing. I would like to talk about going off the road and uh, doing your own thing and defying what is the path that you're supposed to be on. Now, that would be your free will. I mean, you are allowed that. You are allowed to go off the dial. You're allowed to, you know, do whatever you want to. But for Lao Tzu, he's saying the way to behave, loose, is follow the dial. Are there consequences for going off road? Not really. No, but his way that he tells you to follow the path or the Tao is something that, that's called Wu Wei. It's one of the central teachings of Taoism, and Wu Wei roughly translates to non-action or effortless action. People, people struggle all the time, Luce, and in the end, nothing, it's, it's for naught. The natural way of life is to, as you referred to, go with the flow. Okay. And we spend too much time resisting the flow, and that causes disharmony. That causes the disruptions, and that we'd be better off if we went with the flow. Okay. The flow being just conventional norm behavior. Well, again, yeah, I guess if you want to think about what I you know, started off this about the division between Western and Eastern thought, maybe something along those lines. But I think he's really thinking about in any of our actions that we do – are we doing, we should not be doing anything that is uh, futile. Okay. And he would say, you know, if you're, if you're never going to finish a, a project, you shouldn't get started. So you shouldn't ever take up education and learning because you'll never get to the end of learning. There's okay. no point in ever doing that if it's, if it's never going to come to an end. They should just be a simple farmer, I guess, your whole life. Just appreciate planting. Maybe it's not the religion for you. Maybe not. Maybe not be. I mean, we're both educators. So, like... That part does is hard to swallow. Uh, yeah, we both, we both do a bunch of... In maybe the eyes of Wu, uh, Wu Wei. Am I pronouncing it correctly? In the eyes of Wu, Wu Wei, uh, we would maybe be doing something that is, like you said, fruitless. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, but, I mean, we're also, like, maybe biologically also evolutionary, evolutionarily driven to... I want to, like, better understand, like, knowledge and virtue, maybe? Oh, yeah, I would agree. Like, Is I, that a waste I, of time? I, we started a podcast on episode one and <laughs> said I was a lifelong learner. Like, I don't know. Like, mm. I understand what he's saying about follow the Tao. Okay. Go with Wu Wei. Go with the least resistance. But, all right. 
next segment again uh shout out to the feedback that we've got so this one um uh, gonna shout out to my co-worker uh, who enjoyed the recent psychology news uh, bit on this. And so I thought I would uh, give him a little shout-out for that. Um, our first one, and this is, goes back to something you're near and dear to, babies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Not specifically babies, but baby consciousness. Oh, okay. Do babies have consciousness? You yeah. asking me right now? Yes or no? Uh, Yes. Uh, you read ahead in the notes. No, no. I didn't. No, no, no. I, I take a little bit of issue with this article, as I'm sure you probably are not surprised. But yeah, let's get, I let, picked let, it. Yeah. Let's, let's get into it. So what's this about here? All right. And, uh, you know, and in all disclosure, I wanted to say that I was trying to find uh, news articles that didn't relate to neuroscience because there's a lot. The last few ones that for we've had. So they not can, for the plebes. So it's like, it gets kind of boring. Okay. Like, biology. we block some neurotransmitters and now people aren't eating themselves. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so uh, there is a little bit of that in this, but I was thinking about the idea of consciousness here, and this is an article that I got from uh, Trinity College in Dublin, and it was saying that they have a uh, new perspective on baby consciousness, that babies are conscious pretty much when they're born and possibly even when they're in the womb. There is consciousness going on. Do you, do you find that uh, uh, bothersome at all? I find it bothersome only in the sense that, like, we have this need to maybe say that consciousness exists overnight or something. That you just, like, flip a switch and all of a sudden it's like, oh, like, now you have consciousness as opposed to, like, when you were still the biological forming thing that you came to be. And I, you know, would also argue that at what point does consciousness end? As you are dying, as you are, like, fading away but you still have some biological things that are sort of clicking clicking well no i think that you're getting at uh, we're actually you know like full circle kind of where this uh originated from was looking at uh where, where or how we define the consciousness so i mentioned about the the neurobiology you can talk about this they've done brain scans on people to try to determine whether or not they're brain dead or not like at what point is there no consciousness going on there so they have looked at the regions of the brain that that display consciousness and mm -hmm. so now reverse engineering that we can now look at newborn babies and see that they have consciousness or those parts of their brain that display consciousness are active okay i feel like we're actually going back to a, a previous episode here where we talked about how much consciousness does one have because surely it's like a gradient it's not like you all of a sudden you do or do not have it there is a gray where there is a degree of consciousness. But you can say when something has no conscious and so when something does have some conscious. A, a living thing? Is that how you're defining living? And mm, no. Having consciousness or not having consciousness? Are you, are you talking about like plants or something like that? Maybe like plants have like consciousness of sorts or something? I don't know, do they? I don't know. Um, but they live and they, they drive in the same sense that anything biological um, is driven as well. So this uh, this article, it came out in Trends of Cognitive Science. Uh, I found it free online, so, you know, go bang on them if you want to. Um, that the it, One of the underlying things here, if we're going to then define consciousness in this way, then it's important for some clinical and ethical and potentially legal implications. Uh, the, the fact that we are in a very hostile climate about what defines life and not life, mm -hmm. that maybe consciousness is a way to then, if we're going to define it at the end of life, 
we can define it at the beginning of life. Yeah, sure. I guess when we're talking about abortion, especially when we're talking about like when did you say the a word? I did. You have to. I, I mean, that's where you're going with this, right? It. I mean, like, no, well, whatever. Know. I'm just gonna say what you were already like pretty much alluding to, and yeah, the notion and idea that consciousness is maybe something that exists at a certain threshold. I think that this article could maybe invoke a lot of like really interesting ethical discussion or surrounding that that would maybe inform some laws. Yeah, and again, that definition of what is life. Mm-hmm. All right, next article I found was, uh, this one is near and dear to me because it has to do with Neanderthals. And I don't know, Luz, we, ha- we haven't talked about it. This is like something for another, I mean, a whole other segment someday is I'm really fascinated with the other bipedal creatures that were out there as we were wandering the around. The perpetual continued existence of Neanderthals in the world? Well, no, just that I'm fascinated by the fact that there was like not just Neanderthals, but a bunch of other humanoid things that were out there and somehow Homo sapien came on top. And this article, though, is to say that we we know now because we have mapped the Neanderthal genome. We've mapped the human genome so we can see that there is definitely overlap somewhere along the line. Someone got a little uh, (laughs) a little carried away with the Neanderthal girls. (laughs) (laughs) My God. And we have some Neanderthal in our genome nowadays. So this study, th- and this is weird, is that it uh, looked at a hundred and al- almost two thousand people, measured them in Columbia. Oh, by the way, this is from a University College of London, so mm-hmm. not too dumb. And the authors found that uh, if these people had the Neanderthal genome, they were more responsive to skin pricking. I know we think of Neanderthals being the these brutes, but apparently, you know, they don't like being pricked. Yeah, that was the defying aspect of this article. Like, wouldn't you presume that the caveman would be like, oh, like tough, like ready to receive um, skin pricking? Yeah, and oh, they would be like, oh, just a little skin prick, you know? Like the humans would be little wussies because we don't have hair. Like, oh, don't don't skin prick me. Yeah, like all these motherfuckers are walking around like doing clubbing and like doing like hardcore stuff, like brute stuff, and like. The white n- collar office dude can like take more pain than these fools. Yeah, so you know a lot. We're learning about the Neanderthals here. I wonder how did they measure this? In what way could they possibly create like a baseline for measuring? This no, Luis, that's not where I was going with this. I was <laughs> I was going with um. All right, so we know these Neanderthals were not as big brutish guys as they were, but it, this is really. It really baseline stuff. They're just people carrying the Neanderthal genome, like just three markers of it, and they did not show responses to heat or pressure. It was exclusively skin pricking. Hmm. And I, okay, I don't, you know, when I'm reading up for this, you know, the show here, I don't. There's only so many levels I can go down, but it said in here that they were more responsive to skin pricking after prior exposure to mustard oil. Hmm. As a topical, we're presuming here? I, I, bathe in it? Uh-huh. <laughs> Do they the supplements, you know? Do they have to cook their, their I don't know, what they're eating there in Colombia. Uh, their tapas? Uh-huh. Or they, they have to fry those in mustard oil? We need to get to the bottom of this so we can find a tried and true test to determine any, which of our friends does is what any of our friends know. I'm pretty sure you just, like, you lather it on. You just, like, how melt, you melt use it. Mu- the, how would mustard oil would enhance skin pricking sensitivity? I always knew Dave was a Neanderthal. Yeah, I mean, just we'll prick him oh, sometimes. No, you can't just shout him out like that. Oh, whatever. Um, 
Anyway, so they got the mustard oil on there, and uh, okay, there's one other thing though, Luce. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to slide in here to this about uh, the research that I found. So they were looking at the genome, and I mentioned that they were they found this in about 2,000 people in Colombia, uh, but the they actually had filtered through a larger genetic gene pool of about almost 6,000 people from Brazil. Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru. And they found that Neanderthal DNA was more common in people that had Native American ancestry, such as they saw in the Peruvians, which almost 66% of the Native Peruvian DNA had Neanderthal genome. I don't know about the spread of the amount of Neanderthal that's in other populations, but that sounds like a lot... How are they getting to... I mean, we don't have any Neanderthal bones in the Andes. Mm-hmm. Where was this happening? Yeah. How far did it spread? Like... Did they come across the land bridge? I mean, there's a lot of s- stuff now on how Native Americans got here, and I don't know. I Maybe I need to... Maybe one of our audience members knows more about this, but hmm. how did... How was it possible that the Neanderthal genome made over here from Europe. That's where I thought they were from. Whenever there was presumably not much otherwise dispersion of people across the world, um, this one particular genome is found in people in this one part of the Earth where we presumed that maybe they would have not had as free early access to. Yeah, and a significant 66% of the population had some Neanderthal genome in them. Mm. Which, you know, maybe, you know, we have this, you know, now, now again, I told you, I want to do a whole bit on this one time, but the human spread across the planet. When we went out across the world, there were other things out there, other humanoids, other bipedals out there. Hmm. We just kicked their ass. All right. Very excited about our next block here. It was a very special uh, live recording that Luce and I did. We went out on an adventure and brought the microphones along and then afterwards immediately after we had an art experience we'll tell you about it we sat down with our microphones and did a live recording i'll let you listen to that right now all right folks so we're just getting back from the broken specter exhibit by richard moss at the hoffman gallery at lewis and clark college and campus Uh, this exhibit was most recently in melbourne and london before coming to us so that's uh pretty impressive on our behalf to be putting ourselves on the map with the likes of those cities in terms of hosting a great ambitious art project like we just saw. And uh, so we just got done with it and it's still fresh in our head. So Luce and I have not even talked about this yet, but we do want to talk about it immediately. So we took ourselves to the uh, proper pint and in Multnomah Village and so the audio that you're hearing this is another live broadcast I don't think we're going to do the ERS on the proper pint maybe save that for another time I think so we're going to have to uh, definitely get into talking about that so um, loose first impressions what do you think of the what do you think of the experience okay so whenever we got there parking sucked uh, it made for a very like we had to park really far away but it made for really a far away. I thought so. I it seemed longer than what it actually ended up being, but it really created for a lovely stroll through the campus of Lewis and Clark. And I, would, I had only been to Lewis and Clark once previously, and so it was really nice to see that it's like sort of embedded in nature and like this wooded area. And it was really nice. We walked by the uh, reflection pond or whatever, uh, the mirror pond. It was, it was a covered like, bridge. Yeah, it was nice. It was a covered bridge. It's sort of like pathways that were like through the woods and stuff. And that was really cool. 
Um, as soon as we got to the Hoffman Gallery, we took a picture. It's going to be on our Insta. What what? And um, we were greeted by these undergraduate students who were just at this desk as soon as you walk into Hoffman Gallery, and they were super nice, super polite, and like welcoming, and yeah, just created for like a really good like entry into the exhibit. I, I if I didn't know that what we were doing, where we we're going, I would not have understood it from the outside. I would not have understood no way. Yeah. what they were, you know, what was even going on in there. I did go to uh, the Hoffman Gallery when I attended my uh, my grad program there. Look at you. Okay. Yes, I do remember something, uh, some little art exhibit or something. I walked in on that, but I completely forgot about that since then. So it was a, it was a fresh new experience for me. Yeah. So as soon as you walk in to the exhibit, a uh, very dark room, mostly black painted walls, floor, ceiling. Everything is very dark. It was kind of hard to see where you were even stepping. Um, because everything is black except for this immersive, huge, gigantic, dark, but big screen um, that is just like really like it's not dark, it's illuminating, it's just like glowing. Um, it's about 15 feet tall, maybe about 60 feet wide or so. Um, and there are shots across this whole entire wide screen. We get the impression that the film, this exhibit, is a film that's just constantly on loop, so you can hop right in whenever. It doesn't really matter, although there were some pivotal points that were much more poignant as you watch the screening. Um, and at any one time, there was a shot that captured most of the dimensions of the entire width, but a lot of times the shots were broken up into having two, three, sometimes four shots at a time in these panels across this screen, um, mostly black and white, occasional, very clear, intentional use of vibrant color shots, and I'll sort of talk on that in a little bit, but it's very much just like this black and white immersion thing. I liked the the splitting of the screen because I felt, uh, you know, as, as an immersion experience, you're like looking over in the left, you're looking to the right, I want to see what's going on in there, and then they'll like bring it back to one giant one and focus you back and then split it up. So I, I thought that was really nice. And I'm glad that you brought up the, the color because I, I think this is obviously a deliberate choice by um, the producers of this to the artist. I'm not sure what we call them, but uh, most a lot of black and white uh, through a lot of through it. And um, and then when they did show the forest, they had a weird uh, tint on there. So where, the, where trees would be green, the trees were red. When they showed uh, some underwater pictures, the vegetation was uh, in sort of like neon colors. Or if they did close-ups of the um, the plants, they'd be sort of in neon. But everything else then was black and white. I felt like the producers were doing this deliberate thing to uh, keep that away from us. Because when I think of rainforest, when I think of uh, did we say what the purpose of it? I was going to say like I guess we're taking our investigation and exploration of this exhibit um, for granted because our listeners right now don't even know what the exhibit is about. Do you want to give it a shot and sort of describe it? Yeah, I it? will. Uh, uh, I mean, I, what my takeaway was just a, a a real look into deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. The different causes such as uh, you know, slash and burn agriculture, intensive um, cattle ranching, there's mining, there is hydroelectric projects, there's all of these things that are going on that are decimating it. So again, I think that by them purposely using that, that black and white, you kind of for 
took away the enjoyment you have from seeing a um, the rainforest, the greens, yeah. all the different textures of greens, just not there. Yes, yeah, just not there. Yeah, and I, I wonder now, only thinking about that, that maybe the black and white helped sort of create the sort of like desolate and depraved nature of what deforestation is. Yeah, this project was totally about the impact of deforestation, and I'll sort of talk a little bit on that later. Um, there's this drone ambient soundscape, which is basically like a soundtrack of something that I would listen to in my, in my house anyway. I love music like this, but a very drony ambient soundscape that really supports this looming sense of the inescapable dread and devastation, the unavoidable condition of the ecocide. Um, it's honestly haunting sometimes in sounding, and sometimes it's, it's beautiful in an ambient way but it creates this yeah, sort of haunting sense of imminence of our geological organ failure uh, on a planetary level. It kind of sounds like, I love going back to it, I hope in multiple episodes I referenced Blade Runner 2049, but it, very, it was very similar to the soundscape, the, the soundtrack, uh, the score rather, to that film. Uh, the drone abruptly shuts off at times, uh, whenever shots are changed from one to the neck, where next, where like you're sort of lost in this surreal um, experience of this peripheral aspect of deforestation when you're automatically teleported into a scene. For instance, where you're floating down a river, this very low shot, very on top of the water, where you're floating down a river and the immersive sounds of like bugs and the clicks and chirps of like birds all around you in full surround sound. Uh, one one of those scenes in particular on the river, there was a long shot of a, a panther, it seemed like, this like lion cat, this like animal jungle cat. It's a long shot of him and you can sort of see him walking behind trees. At times you can't see him because he's just covered by trees that are in the way. And it's a very long shot. And then all of a sudden, there's this boat that comes by of tourists. There's like two or three little like flat boats that come by and you just see their backs because they're in front of you and they're taking like photographs of the panther through the forest and sort of like the impact of like how humans integrate and manipulate and interact with the natural environment. It was kind of like, it kind of felt like a Disneyland like ride version of like Apocalypse Now or something if you could imagine like going down the river and then like, yeah. Just, yeah. I, that was actually one of my, my favorite parts there because you're, again, they, um, the producers tease you with the the natural environment. So when you're looking at the the panther, it's in the jungle. It's behind bushes and trees and, and, and coming in, and then all of a sudden you get the boat of tourists like passing in front, and then you're behind totally. the the four, three, four boats, whatever of tourists, and they all have these expensive cameras and they got all the right gear. And I'm thinking like. Oh, these you know these people have you know the eco tourists or whatever are spending so much money to get this shot of the panther, and here I was watching it's like oh I want to see the panther and then now I'm like having to confront the tourists yeah hey down in front I'm trying to get my picture of the panther like the constant juxtaposition of like oh this is so serene and peaceful because I'm just watching nature right now and then the like random insert of like humans, whether it's like a man-made structure or actual humans themselves. Pretty good segue into my next sort of takeaway. I didn't expect it to be sociological, so sociological in nature, like with the random insertions of like regular people engaging in city cultural activity, 
um, a lot of shots of countryside commoners um, making food, tending to their land, just doing like countryside kind of like work and life. Uh, was delighted to learn that this project was not just a bunch of like literal shots of like tree stumps and like cut down trees, like it wasn't like that dumbed down. Um, and yet you're really whisked away into the indirect, unthought, peripheral aspects surrounding deforestation, um, most of which like aren't even really destructive at all. It's just like really more of like these common natural experience, natural situations and human maneuvers like through nature and environment and stuff. I thought the the when they depicted the the people that were there doing the work, uh, it was it was very humanizing because they are that's hard work. These aren't people that they're they're poor. They are you know tending their their cattle. They are putting up fences and, and hewing logs to make uh, fence posts. The the miners that are working on the uh, you know you know finding the gold. It, it's hard work, they, and these people are poor. They're not getting rich off of it, which was so abstract because here they're causing such devastation, you know, massive amounts of devastation. The work, these people are working their ass off, and they're not, get, they're not the ones getting rich off this. So the destruction's coming from somewhere else, so to speak. Because uh, like when you saw the, the family, the rancher family, how simple, how basic, you know, tending your cattle, it, it, on the individual level, it didn't seem bad. It didn't seem like individually these people out there. But then when you multiply that by the you know, the, the, the whole, the, the totality of it, it, it's devastating. But it's, so there was like an abstract for me between the individuals and then the absolutely the, the totalitarian. Yeah, like the unaware sort of like existence of these people and the things that they're doing, all for this greater sort of like unseen corporation that probably you know is logistically making these things happening they're hiring the people like down down the pipe with it um the screen is so big um that you can't escape the images as though it were um suffocating and like it's a larger than life like rothko painting or something that you like you cannot get away from and i thought that that was really it's not a it's not like too oppressive, but it really forces attention to what it is that the artist is trying to get you to pay attention to. Um, as mentioned, going back to the use of color, the red tint, as you mentioned especially, uh, was one of the colors that was most used when there was not black and white shots, and that red tint, I felt, was oppressive, um, and it made it feel like other planet-like. Like, when I, like what I was looking at, um, like it just didn't resemble Earth. Like the terrain, like did not resemble Earth in many places, especially when the red was utilized. And like the underwater shots, like holy shit, it was like alien-looking. Like I didn't, I wasn't sure if it was like microscopic, like zoom-ins of like cells. Um, and then yeah, you kind of quickly realize that it is more like the undisturbed life, organic life that exists like under the water. Um. It's interesting because I kind of took a different takeaway from the underwater scene was the, uh, the the polluted like it's the the rot and the decay like if you flood a rainforest, all of those trees are just rotting in the water below the below the water line and I just got that as like all these this particles and stuff that that shouldn't be there. That was my kind of takeaway. Which you know if I was going to say one critique. I would say I kind of wish I had some context and know what I was looking at at a couple of times. There were some bizarre shots of, um, I think, organic material, maybe like 
uh, buds of a of, from a tree. Yeah, just kind of unclear and just really, carbon based. And in the in the in the water thing too, it would have been nice if they actually said what we were seeing. They had the color on it, but couldn't quite tell what exactly that that we were looking at. So it would have been nice uh, to have that. I have to say though, one of the most gripping scenes for me in there, and again going back to the idea that this is large, these are huge screens, and they had um, two versions of a tree felling going on. So they these massive trees, and, and, and these things are massive, so they were, I don't know, 80 years old, 100 years old, can't really tell how old they, these trees were. And then they had uh, chainsaws going, and there was two different chainsaws, like the dueling chainsaw kind of thing going on, and so loud, and you know, again, these, these hardworking guys chopping down these trees, and then the final scene of both of these trees uh, coming down, smashing into the forest. It was it, it was really sad because, like, who are these people to come in there and take away that tree that had been there for so long and provided an environment, an ecosystem for all those animals and life forms, and for them just to come and chop it down. But then adding to a level that made that even worse, they didn't harvest the wood. They weren't doing it. They were clearing the land so they could burn it. So those logs didn't end up becoming a, a, a chair or something that you know, useful. They were simply chopped down so they could make it easier to burn the land and clear it down for, for I, cattle. I thought there was a lot of really poignant and provocative shots of fire uh, in the film, and those were all in black and white. There's still just like, there's the undeniable glare, and like you can almost feel the heat in the f from the flames of the fire. And it made me think a lot about, I have to admit, I don't know a great deal about it, but I think for a long time in America, there was just like this presumed uh, avoiding of fires when I think now we have a better understanding of controlled burns are actually very healthy for maintenance of planetary terrain. But yeah, I was wondering about that also as well. Well, and then those, that's what kept playing in my head about the um, like climate change. Like you're putting carbon directly into like that carbon being stored in those trees and all the vegetation there in one fell swoop hundreds of years of carbon being released and, and they would show you the big massive smoke clouds that were coming out of that blacking out the sun and the one shot of the the traffic having everybody had their lights and their hazard lights on because it was so smoky they had to go through it. and i was just thinking about like that is like the the fastest way to climate change right there but you're directly putting carbon straight into the air for no again no purpose other than to clear the land mm -hmm. There was this one really, really great shot um, of this mechanical, this machine that was being inserted down, like, into the water, and then you sort of slowly see it being, like, pulled up from the water. And I think that was, like, the only time that we spoke, like, during it, because it, I mean, it was, like, dead silent in this place. You, you, just, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be speaking when you're watching this. You should just be... Um, polite and attentive to it to respect the space of the other people watching the Hold other up. person yeah they, there was like a couple people one other person for a brief moment <laughs> but otherwise there was just like one chick behind us and she was just you know doing her thing watching it like we were but during that machine water part you said to me what the hell was that to which I also had no idea because the shot was cut too short for um, and you couldn't really capture and you couldn't really make out and understand what this oily forged uh, mechanic beast uh, was doing and fucking up that space where 
it clearly didn't belong in the space that was so clearly contrasting, and it, it just didn't belong there. And I think that that's what that shot. And a lot of the well, they did show a couple uh, a couple minutes later. They show what that was. Yeah, yeah. It was like a, a dredge there, uh, going for gold, like pulling up the the bottom of the riverbed. It seemed like yeah, like a, a device that was for that purpose. Again, just raping the environment there. Yeah. But I, I had that same takeaway of just like like what, what no like this should it just it's incompatible it's wrong um, it's just a gross rusty thing that's not doing something to help the organic like structures that are there whatever I'm not trying to be too tree over here or whatever like um, can I just talk about the the mining that they showed there where there are just hosing down they're using water uh, hoses high power water hoses to uh, to wipe away the the dirt. And then that drifts down, and they get the, the gold, I guess, from the end. But as they zoom out, like, so you see, you know, on the individual level, you see the guy holding the hose. And you're like, okay, he's, you know, hosing that. But then as they pull out, um, you see, like, the acres and acres and acres of devastation because then there's no trees, there's no life, there's no nothing. They're just, like, completely washing away the environment for... And they showed us, like, that small handful of gold, like, how much... <laughs> destruction was done it was really hard to not feel have a visceral reaction to to seeing that level of destruction Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um in this exhibit there are these jumbo pillow like cushion chairs the kind of like nice bean bags like gourmet bean bag chairs um and i thought that they'd be super uncomfortable but i was actually pretty cozy I thought it was good in my back. I don't know. I, I saw that you first sat on it, and then you were like, no. Nah. Like, and you just sat, like, uh, cross-legged. Is that the appropriate way to say that form of sitting now? Crisscross uh, applesauce. Uh, yeah, we don't, we don't, indigenous sitting, we don't say that anymore. Um, but I was wondering, do you think that anyone, anyone had sex in those pillows? Like, during the... No, you were there, but, you know, like, in times of previous, like, showings or something? Yeah, it would be really distracting. It would be a hard environment with this particular show going on. Yeah. Uh, but... It is on a college campus. Yeah. I don't see why maybe even just some finger banging or something wasn't going on. <laughs> I mean, we happen to be the only people that were there during this showing, so there, surely that happened before. And I mean, let's be honest, like, what could be sexier than uh, humans deliberately destroying the planet? So, just you know, set, 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 burn, set, burn, set, baby, burn, burn, set a good tone. Um, I, you know, getting back to, like, what I was talking about with the mining and showing the, um, the, the landscape, the the use of drones and it's not just in this film but it, you know across things it was w- well done here but the fact of being able to use drones in uh, capturing images I think is, is really stepped up a uh, you know the the storytelling because you can you know you can zoom in and zoom out you can fly up and show something from from different angles and create these other perspectives instead of just being sort of flat on the ground or you know, like a flyby, like a helicopter or something, you can get pretty intimate. And so some of these shots that they were coming up with, I thought were well done, well placed. Oh, the drone, like, aerial shots were fantastic. I can't remember the name of the film. Is it, like, uh, Powers of Ten? Powers of the... Dumbass. It's like a famous film, like an educational film from, like, maybe the like 80s or something, where they start in, like, a cell, and they go out by layers of 10 until eventually like they're in outer space and you're looking at like our galaxy and like other galaxies around our galaxy but like yeah that layered sort of strata um, view I thought was really supportive for just like the overall feel and takeaway of this experience um, 
And then um, another thing that I mean, there's so many disturbing things, but the uh, the cows uh, play a, a large part in the deforestation, and individual cattle ranchers. But then the, the processing of the cows was was interesting um, to see to see that as well. And as I'm like watching this, I'm thinking I I think I'm really done eating cow. I think I am. I it's so hard. This to is what see. tipped you over the edge. Uh, well, it's been it's been. I've already like waned way back off. I, I've had like one piece of red meat since uh, my birthday, uh, and that was a, a smash burger I had. But I just uh, I see those cows and know how much devastation they bring, how much water, how much methane they produce, the land that they require to do it, and they're very cute. They you know got their big eyes and they're kind of dopey and hang out like. I wouldn't mind having a pet cow, but um, what got me though is that, you know, so like there's all, all these images, like seeing them process the cows was, was tough to watch, but I'm a meat eater, so I understand that's part of it, but I started thinking like, here we are in the Amazon, and the cows don't, didn't come from the Amazon, you know, cows are from the, the you know, Eurasian steppe plains, whatever, that's where cows come from, and so to see the, this destruction that's happening for an animal that wasn't even part oh, of it, the it, it sort of it was really bizarre because I kept thinking like, okay, what are these cows eating in a rainforest? Like, where's their nutrition coming from? They didn't show them eating anything, so I was kind of curious about that. I, I don't it's, know, it's the layering of the rainforest that has been made for grazing grounds for, for cow. I think is, is my understanding that that's been going on since the '80s. McDonald's has been been one of the, historically the biggest contributors to that, from what I understand. Um, but yeah, that was just, I thought, a really great, like, there's all this, like, peripheral, like, tangential sort of, like, tie-ins to the greater indirect um, aspects of deforestation. Again, not just shots of, like, sh tree stumps, like, oh, they cut down a tree. You know, that's, like, childish. Like, we have to have trees to be building the infrastructure that we need for our planet. But, yeah, other sort of peripheral aspects surrounding ecocide. Um, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. Um, and without spoiling it, um, the, the most poignant scene of the film, I just really want to talk about it, but it would spoil it so much. It, it, without spoiling it, uh, it's, it's of an ind indigenous woman, uh, and um, that was, I mean, that was just, uh, all I could describe it as is just like alerting, like spontaneously captivating and just like really, really alerting and gripping. I was uh, impressed by how articulate she was. She was speaking specifically to the point, so specifically to the harm that was being done there and giving solutions like this is what needs to be done. But she also calls out um, calls out the West, calls out the NGOs, calls out you know people to send, send the money there to fix the problem because there is a huge problem there. And it, it, it was hard to, you know, what I'm thinking about, Okay, there's problems in the the Amazon, and this. Uh, how do I impact that? But then I, as soon as I had that thought, I'm like, we have illegal logging here in Oregon, we have illegal ranching in Oregon, we have illegal mining in Oregon. These problems of allowing people to to pillage the environment and not have consequences for it. You know, maybe if we were stronger at home, it'd be easier to act stronger away. But we don't take care of our own backyard, so. I'm sorry, indigenous people. That's not the right attitude, but um, kind of a little telling about that. Yeah. Um, for lovers of vignette film and found video, 
uh, film that just sort of captures like snippets of everyday life experiences. This is a must. Uh, check it out for sure. And as ambitious as the work is, there's no pretense. It's not arrogant. You don't need to feel like you're too much of a dummy to be eligible to participate in or grapple with the content of this artistic project. Really, you don't. It's provoking for all, for anyone of any age, um, or shape or size, or occupation, whatever. And it's not just simply reserved for the uh, intelligentsia. And it is, again, uh, I like that being a medium that's easy to, to come in and engage with it. The only speaking part in there was the, that indigenous woman um, giving her diatribe mm-hmm. and with, with, tra- with subtitles mm-hmm. on that, but the rest of it was just all visual. And, and just, that, that was the part that I wasn't exactly going to give away, but like, yeah, it is otherwise an entirely silent work with a score that goes with it. And what's so alerting about that scene is you do hear her voice and she speaks. Uh, not directly into the camera, but you are her audience. Um, she's oh, surrounded by yes, you are. other people of her um, tribe, um, and that was yeah, that was really cool. Uh, one last thing I wanted to touch on about this was, um, you know, our our topic. We enjoy so much education. They showed the uh, kid in the uh, in the the ranch, whatever, by himself. He was, there was no school like this kid. <laughs> wasn't going to school. He wasn't good in classes. Like his lessons were through play. They showed him with some of his toys, and he was mimicking the things he would do in his career. And so he was he was play. He was watching his his dad do these things like milk the cow and or, or feed the the cow. I mean, uh, and do we? How much education do you really need to do something uh, like that? Do you, you being smart would would he be better off if he had? gone to school and learned his ABCs. Toy lassos and little, little toy like cows and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, he needs to, you know, take his AP Calc test and he's not going to be passing AP Calc by lassoing little, you know, <laughs> little toys, okay? If the indigenous women scene was the most poignant, by far that, that scene with the kid was so adorable. That was just, that was so, like warming and just a really adorable like scene of this of this kid playing with these little like toy figurines and sort of staring on. But also just the the connection, the humanity of it. Like we all understand kids. Absolutely. We all understand the play. Like he is not you know, sure he's part of the system that's destroying the environment, but he himself is not destroying the environment. He is just being a kid. He's playing. His parents live there. That's what his parents do. That's his life. Yeah. Uh, so, Brook Inspector by Richard Moss is going on at the Hoffman Gallery at uh, Lewis and Clark College campus. It's going on now through December 15th. It is free. Um, I really... My favorite price. Yeah, it's free. It's free, yo. You, the, the, the walk is not that long. Just try to like find the best possible like parking yeah. lot. It's like free there. What was the name of our building? The Fowler building? The, is that the name of the Fowler I, Center? I don't remember. Go to the Fowler Center. They have free parking. Uh, it's open on Sundays. On the weekends. Saturdays and Sundays, too, yo. Um, and, yeah, you know, I stoked this to people that were very close to me. Um, and people were like, uh, like, yeah, that sounds like theoretically cool or whatever, but, you know, they didn't want to go. And then and that made me also kind of uninspired and not want to go. I am so glad that I had gone. It was way better and way more meaningful than I thought it was going to be. And this is re- really reinforcing to me that, like, it's easy to get lazy with art. 
it's easy to have low expectations or presume that it's just going to be like this dumb dumb thing and that happens you have to take risks you have to put yourself out there some of the stuff because everything's stoked everything's branded and stoked and advertised in a way right now that's just like oh my god like check this out and like a lot of those things are like big fart sounds like they just fall flat this one does not fall flat this this was fantastic i really would recommend it to uh to anyone it's pretty great and how long will this be uh in the at the it's going on to December 15th. Now, I don't want to put any pressure on you, Luis, but that means we need to get this uh, this podcast out. So By that, December 15th? <laughs> so that people can have a chance to go, oh, yeah, go see it. Okay, well, yeah. Um, lastly here, I want to say thanks to Sean and the Proper Pint for hosting our little review here. Shout I, out to the Proper Pint. Yeah, 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 come on down, especially for a Timbers game, yo. Pretty much everyone listening to this, I think, already joins us for those games. Um, but I am having a Fruity Pebble Cheesecake Dessert Sour right now, and it is so good. And uh, for in case you were, in case anybody was interested, I'm having the uh, the Crossing Columbia IPA, which is a collab between Alsan and Upstanding uh, Breweries. So it's a nice IPA. Um, enjoy it. Sure. Okay. Back to the episode. Wow, that was a uh, great listening back to that. I hadn't uh, heard that since we put that together. Yeah, having gone a few weeks ago now or whatever, like it's really nice to step aside, have some time to think about it. Yeah, I know. I, you know, a couple things came to mind. I have a Brazilian student in class, and I mentioned, obviously, hey, I went and saw this thing about Brazil, and she seemed very sort of not disinterested because <laughs> her teacher was talking to her, but also so abstract for her the idea of climate change. So, like any other teenager, it's such a large issue that's hard for them to you know get their heads around and then i also kept thinking in my head like where we went to see this on some elite private school college campus in a just a a random building you couldn't find the access to that material was so exclusive and I don't know who the audience was when I think about it like that. Luke, yeah. do you have any thoughts? Yeah, that? I mean, I would not want to get too concerned, maybe personally, about it being in an echo chamber like Lewis and Clark, where people are going to be like, oh, of course I'm sympathetic to that, regardless of how much they might act. But, I mean, you know, if this wouldn't really resonate maybe in the ghetto when people were not having their basic needs met. It's like, okay, that's really sad, but, like, I don't have food. <laughs> Or I have disease that's not being treated medically because I can't access medical care. I don't know. Um, And also, you know, at the same time, what can be said for maybe this just being standing alone as a really beautiful art project that just happens to be a comment on the way things are and just sort of depicting, I mean, I guess that's really a a lot of the beauty of art. And the uh, it's not telling you something. It's just giving you feelings and emotions that you're walking away with. And I had a lot. To, well, that is going to put a wrap on this episode. Oh my gosh! I know it's it's been fun. We've uh, we've delivered over an hour of content to our our listeners. No, can't um, wait to do the next one here. This has been an outstanding episode, Gifford. Yeah, thank I'm, you. I'm I'm proud of it, dude. Yeah. Thanks. We put some good work into this one, and I think uh, hopefully hopefully it's enjoyed. Um, with that, of course, uh, I have to give a big shout out to Luce because 
Tomorrow is your birthday. Oh my gosh, you fucking! I'm not okay. (laughs) Not see that coming. (laughs) All right, I'm not gonna sing, but uh, the balloons and stuff will be coming though. So uh, fun! I'm glad we're gonna get this out for a little birthday present. Get this out for right on, dude. Appreciate you, man. And of course, we are now global. Like I said, we're on the Instagram at Omni the Podcast. Uh, You can reach us at Gmail at Omni the Podcast at Gmail.com. And looking forward to the next episode. Yeah, see you guys later.